Industry 4.0 or digitalization, you know, whatever you want to call it, is purely a technology-driven initiative brought together essentially to increase productivity and boost profitability. Oftentimes, though, when technology enters the picture, user reluctance and hesitation often follow shortly behind. Then you add in the proven in use conservative nature of safety professionals and technology step changes can often become bogged down. That is exactly where Industry 5.0 comes in. This movement brings the human right back into the center of the equation, which makes it a human-centric and more personal experience. This way, everyone understands technology is there to better serve the human and make them more effective, not just more efficient. Hello, my name is Greg Hale, and welcome to another Today with ISS Source podcast. And with us to talk about safety and Industry 5.0 is Steve Elliott, Senior Offer Director, Safety and Critical Control at Schneider Electric. Steve, welcome. Thanks, Greg, and thanks to everyone for listening. Well, Steve, we're going to get right into it. And we've seen in the industry over the years that one thing can often be defined in multiple, just different ways. I mean, can you define Industry 5.0? Yes, certainly, Greg. You know, no sooner had we got our heads around Industry 4, you know, how we can use digital technology for efficiency gains, what it meant, how we put programs in place, then along comes Industry 5. Now, Industry 5, Industry 5.0, actually originates from the European Commission. So as Europe was transitioning towards climate neutrality and digital leadership, they realized that there is this need to be more competitive and sustainable on the global stage. And so for this transition to be successful, strategies for industrial modernization must put people and societal needs in the center. Now, this goes back to 2020. Participants from research and technology organizations, together with funding organizations across Europe, agreed that social and environmental needs must be better integrated into technology development. And they also agreed that the complexity of the challenges could not be solved by individual technologies but they needed a systematic approach. And so this effectively was where Industry 5.0 was born. Now, the good news is that Industry 5 is an evolution that leverages the technology surge that we saw in Industry 4. So I need to be clear, it's not a replacement, it's not an alternative, it is a logical continuation. And like Industry 4, you know, one word really encapsulated that, which was digitalization. For me, when we look at Industry 5, this is much more about personalization. So what I mean by this is really Industry 4 made it possible. Industry 5 really takes that and makes it usable. Now, Industry 5 is built around three themes, human-centric, resiliency, and sustainability. And it's centered around value. But this move, this shift is there to make technology better serve the human. It's about the human and the machine 
so that they can be more effective. And therefore, what it's doing is it's moving from, you know, industry forward shareholder value, driving, you know, benefits to the P&L performance versus creating stakeholder value, you know, the value of people. Okay. Now, having said that, just how does industry 5.0 apply to safety? So this really changes the way that we now look to create value, to exchange and distribute value. The primary focus of technologies that we use should not be about replacing the worker on the shop floor, but to support the worker's abilities so that they have a safer, and I'll add a a more satisfying work and environment. So let me just take a moment to look at each of those three elements. So obviously the first one, the most important one is the human centric element. Now that puts the, the human needs and the interests at the heart of the production process. It's about providing that safe and inclusive workplace. Now, the technology supports the humans in two areas, physical and cognitive tasks. So rather than asking the the worker to adapt his skills or her skills to the needs of rapidly evolving technology, we want to turn that around. We want to use the technology to adapt the production process to the needs of the worker. So, for example, help him, guide him, train him. Now, what that means is, for example, multilingual speech, gesture recognition, you know, human intention prediction, understanding human behavior, and then being able to apply it to help and guide. We can have technologies now that can track mental and physical strain and the stresses of employees. Robotics, um, collaborative robots or, or cobots, you know, can work together with, with humans and assist them. Augmented virtual mixed reality that we're now seeing, especially useful for training and inclusiveness. If you have lots of physical activities, lots of repeat physical activities, then exoskeletons are fantastic for helping the human do those tasks to reduce the strain on their on their bodies. And then cognitive human capabilities. So matching the strengths of artificial intelligence together with the human brain. So combining the creativity of humans with the analytical skills of machines to drive better decision support. So I was... Actually, funny enough, I was just reading an article on Operator 4.0. It seems everything has a 4.0 that looked at expanding the capabilities of the of the worker together with technology. So just to give you an example, they were looking, as we just said, super strength operators. So using exoskeleton together with the operator, augmented operators, the use of augmented reality to support the operator. The virtual operator, the healthy operator. So in our previous podcast, we spoke about digital foreign technology, about wearable technologies, wearable trackers, um, helping protect the health of the operator. Smarter operators, so intelligent personal assistants. So you can ask the machine a question that has got the knowledge that's been captured over the years from all of the operations, from all of the assets, from all around the world. So it becomes more interactive, more collaborative, 
more social, you know, the use of social technologies, social networks that everybody's now becoming familiar with in their day-to-day lives, we can apply those at a professional level. And of course, the analytical operators, so big data, analytics, AI, machine learning, et cetera, all of that to augment that operator performance. So there are many different approaches, but the core to that, the key, the one common denominator, humans remain at the center of the production process. Mm -hmm. Technology maximizes the benefits to both the company and the worker. The second element is around sustainability. So we've got human-centric, we've got sustainable. This is where electrification is becoming key. So I recently saw an example. There were three major operating companies all joining forces to realize the world's first electrically heated steam cracker furnaces. So they're transitioning from fossil fuels, you know, typically used for the heating process, to renewable electricity. And the potential of this energy transition to reduce CO2 emissions, they estimate could be as much as 90, 90% as they scale that up. So sustainability driven by electrification, and this changes the safety dynamic. So from a risk perspective, the consequences of those furnaces won't necessarily change. Things will still go bang. They can blow up. There can be risk of harm to people, the environment, but the initiating causes will. So now we as a safety community, we need to consider electrical safety, electrical causes and consequences in things like our hazard and operability studies, our risk reduction methods. And the third element, Greg, human-centric sustainability is then resilience. This refers to sort of the ability to cope with greater demand, greater flexibility as, as dynamics change. So from a safety perspective, this typically means we need a greater need for you know, high availability systems, high fault tolerance. They need to be adaptable. They need to be able to scale up. We need to be able to add, make changes, all without interrupting the the supply chain. And to build on that resilience, then bring in things like real-time risk monitoring and management. And I think it's fair to say that over the last couple of years, we as individuals have all learned how to be more adaptable, how we've continued to do our jobs in a different way post-pandemic. So I think that has helped reinforce the value of human-centric, sustainable, resilient. Now, I've got a couple questions off of that. With this shift in humanizing technology or Industry 5.0, are you seeing that it's that is actually happening now? And are you seeing safety professionals adopting and embracing this movement or how would you see safety professionals adopting and embracing this movement? So the short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is um, <laughs> as these new technologies are becoming available, I mean, what it's doing is it's creating space, time, the most valuable thing that we crave you know, for us humans to do what we're good at and let the machines do what they're good at. So let me just put some context for that. What, what I mean is, Think about machines. They're exceptional 
at data collection, data reconciliation. They have an endless capacity. They don't get tired. They can eliminate bias. They're very good at pattern identification. They are consistent and they play by the rules. So a good example of that would be to use some of the industry four technologies, those new software applications. For me, that would be something like uh, Process Safety Advisor, where we can use it for tasks like, you know, compliance of our safety instrumented functions, um, SIF performance reporting, streamlining audits, expediting trip outages. We can let the machine do that work for us because it has the potential to halve the manual effort that is normally required. But as we see that shift, what that then leads us to is the next problem, which is how this now changes people's job functions. Okay. Now, the the safety professional's job is changing under the Industry 4.0 banner. We... We've discussed that in in a previous podcast, but in Industry 5.0, I mean, is the uh, safety expert's job going to change that much more or or what would it look like? So uh, let's look slightly sort of medium to long term. And, And Greg, you said it, we touched on this briefly about how the role changes, how the role of the engineer of tomorrow, he effectively, they need to be a process engineer, a safety engineer, and a data analyst, because they need to understand enough about the context and the correlations. But I will add, and I want to add, that digital skills are not the only skills that are going to be needed for the safety professionals and the industry workers in the future. I was reading a recent document, the World Manufacturing Forum, They've identified the top 10 skills that they think are going to be needed in the future. Now, four of them are digital. That's digital literacy, artificial intelligence, data analytics. Obviously, with new tools, new technologies, the ability to understand those. The third aspect, of course, is with new technology comes cybersecurity. And they add a fourth one, which I think is has never been more important and we need to be dutiful of, which is data mindfulness. The remaining skills are are more sort of transversal, if you like, and that's linked to what we as humans do, which is be creative, entrepreneurial, be flexible, open-minded. So the safety professional, top skills, digital, and then entrepreneurial. But I'm going to add to that, and we've kind of touched on it, briefly when we spoke about sustainability. Electrification is going to become more intrinsic in delivering those sustainability targets. And that's going to bring a new dimension to the traditional role of the safety engineer. Think about it. Just as for process installations that carry hazardous substances, electrical currents and high voltages can also be potentially harmful. As more of the process depends upon electrification, that brings operability and availability issues and also a cost issue because if the electrical power goes and we have a shutdown, okay, we have an unplanned outages, but from a safety aspect, restarting that plant is probably the highest safety risk that we experience. So this transition to electrification, it doesn't mean that 
safety goes away it doesn't mean we no longer need safety but it changes our role as a safety professional the principles don't change we still need to minimize the risk and protect against hazard events like i say equipment still goes bang fires happen over pressure occurs but now the safety dynamics change we don't have naked flames burners igniters but we have electrified assets. So we need to change our way of thinking a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that starts right at the beginning of the safety life cycle with the hazard and risk assessments. The good news is we we as safety engineers, we have a well-established hazard and operability process, a HAZOP process that we use to identify, manage process hazards, risks, and apply the same techniques to identify all of the hazard and operability issues, which now include the electrical network. So effectively, we're going to extend a HAZOP to be an eHAZOP. Let me just give you an example of what I mean by that, Greg, and put a little bit of detail in. So in the on the process side, we take the process diagram, we break it down into nodes, we put keywords against it, we run deviations, we're familiar with that. But we take the same concept and break the electrical system into nodes. We identify deviations. We use guide words. We can identify consequences, causes, and then put our protection measures in place. So good example, divide the electrical system into nodes that correspond to the different bus bars, the voltage levels, you know, um, high voltage, medium voltage, low voltage. The parameters that we would use, besides the more typical, you know, voltage, current, power, frequency, earthing, involve, you know, typical hazard parameters with relation to the electric design. So they could be overload, short circuit, overcurrent, phase faults, and then guide words. So they could be over, spike, under, dip, offset, fault, segregation, load shedding, blackout, many, many more. So whether we like it or not, we need to embrace this move towards electrification. And that really starts at the HAZOP and the eHAZOP. And I will add to that the industry for use of digital twins. Well, guess what? We can use those to enrich that process with a with a digital twin for both the power and the electrical side. So mm-hmm. our role has to embrace electrical because it's to become more intrinsic in the safety of those assets. And so that's going to change our role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, shifting slightly, amongst the many benefits in Industry 5.0 is about giving global visibility in a single view so workers can collaborate and make decisions. In theory, I understand what that means. But how does that really work in in reality? Okay, so let me let me give you a few real world examples. So we spoke about you. We spoke earlier about how we can use virtual reality technology to supplement the role of the operator or the maintenance tech or um, person doing the inspections and the round. So a good example of that is how we can use augmented reality to superimpose data and virtual objects. So example, you walk up to a cabinet. Now, obviously, that cabinet's powered. So you really don't want to. In fact, you probably can't touch it. You offer up your tablet, and it shows you the inside of the cabinet without you having to open the door. So now you can see equipment health status, 
You can superimpose operating data. You can diagnose issues. You can have step-by-step instructions. And you can do all of that without opening the cabinet. So not only does this reduce the potential of harm to the person from electrical shocks or, or arc flash, it means you don't need to isolate the cabinet. You don't need permits. You're not going to need lockout tagouts because effectively now it's a no-touch experience. Now, that device that's used to do that with that person could be connected to the cloud. And so other people anywhere around the world could look at that same information that you have on a production line or on electrical cabinet. So that's that's one example. Another example would be active safety monitoring. So using an application like Process Safety Advisor. So what this does is this gives you real-time operational risk analysis and visualization across a plant unit, across a site, across a number of assets, so you can see your risk posture locally or globally. It's one window. It's the same window that everybody can see and understand of the operational risk for each asset. It's monitoring the health and the status of all the independent protection layers, the risk reduction layers on every asset. So you can see how much risk protection you have in place or where your risk gaps are. And lastly, I would say this concept of global visibility, not just operations, not just safety, but even to the engineers, even early in the design phase, So what I mean by that is you could have a 3D model that shows the mechanical, the electrical, the piping, the automation, the electrical teams, where everything is, how it interacts, and so that they can collaborate, they can share ideas. They can see the potential consequence of decisions or changes before they're implemented. So somebody says, we need to move the siting of that pump that's going to change the piping, that may change the electrical feed, that may change where it's mounted. So one simple small change affects so many people, now you can see that anywhere. So these are just a few examples of of really of how Industry 4 made something possible, but Industry 5 makes it usable. Steve, the, the safety, as you know, as, as we all know, is all about risk management. So, with the the increase in safety technologies, and you know, with these changes that are pretty much going to be happening in this in this new realm, this new environment, does employing the human element to this whole equation give the risk management component a boost, or is it uh, kind of does it, you know, kind of slow it down? No, no, it's it's definitely a boost. If you remember, we spoke earlier about how good machines are at repetitive tasks. Yeah. That now leaves safety professionals to do what they're good at, which is added value engineering. You know, humans are good at imagination. We're creative. We can abstract things in our brains. We love dilemmas, certainly as engineers. Dare I say it, we like to dream, you know, we have, and safety engineers certainly have a passion and a desire for improving. So let me give you just one simple example. And this was one that I just came across recently. One of the biggest challenges that we have with safety related systems is all around functional testing, testing the safety system 
application logic performance runs as intended. Now, traditionally, this is very human dependent. It takes a lot of time. It's resource intensive. And as so often happens because of that, you tend to only look for or test for expected outcomes. In other words, you're looking for the results you want to see. Now there's an opportunity. Let machines do that automated testing. Let them do a lot of the repetitive tasks and a lot of the volume tasks. I mean, we had a plant that's got 4,500 devices on it. Each one of those, you need to check how the device functions, the scaling, the alarms, the bypasses, the fault conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Use automated testing to do that for you. Now that leaves the engineers free to do what they're good at. Spend time on dreaming, abstracting, finding dilemmas so that they can improve the safety. What do I mean by that? Test for unexpected outcomes. You know, now you can do check and improve the integrity of the logic so you get better safety coverage. That same example, that same team with those 4,500 devices, not only were they looking to improve the integrity of the logic, but they also saw ways and found ways to reduce commissioning time, effort, and documentation because this was a new plant. So obviously, startup time is critical. We want to be producing and making money. So the engineers in that team, what they did was they used the same tools and effectively they built a digital twin of the safety system. Then they could imagine scenarios. They were dreaming. They were imagining during, say, startup, which is a very different challenge to sort of the traditional shutdown logic that you've tested during an acceptance test. So what they did was they generated all these different dilemmas. They used the digital twin before the plant had product or energy in it, and they could get a much higher degree of confidence in what the safety systems were doing. They could improve the integrity. They can check for what ifs. They could add more value. And as they were doing that, they were effectively building a digital baseline of what the startup would be to speed up commissioning and not just this startup effort, but any future startup efforts. So mm-hmm. just a good example of how man and machine are working together, using their strengths to reduce the overall risk and do a better job of that risk management. Sure, sure. Now, as I had mentioned earlier, that oftentimes when you introduce new technology or, or new ways of thinking, there is a reticence for users to uh, participate. So with all of this, this is 5.0 evolution and and, and 4.0 for that matter. I mean, are you seeing any kind of pushback from safety professionals in in this environment? You know, I think there's now an acceptance, Greg, that connectivity is a way of life. I know I'm going to sound really old now, but I remember... Many years ago, as a young engineer, we used to say, I am going onto the internet. And you'd plug your computer and your modem in, you'd listen to the dial-up modem screeching at you at 9600 board. And But now, I think you're never not connected. In fact, the choice is the other way around. Rather than choosing to connect, you have to choose to disconnect. So I think connectivity is now a way of our everyday life. 
But this doesn't mean that we shouldn't increase connectivity, but only if it's for the right reasons. It's not just for the sake of being connected. Mm-hmm. The best advice I heard was, you know, firstly, number one, before you do anything, you need to ask why. Why am I connected? Understand why you need to make that connection. And then two, only connect what's needed. And then three, do it securely. So why, what, and then how. Mm -hmm. Connectivity, I think, is required to create or unlock some of the new value. You know, the use of the cloud now means that we have a very or a relatively simple means to get data to anyone, anywhere. Because without that infrastructure, that backbone, we wouldn't be able to have that all-important single view that we spoke about earlier for that easier, better, more informed decision-making. And I will add, as my dear old grandmother once told me, you know, remember, when you solve one problem, you do create another one. So we also need to recognize that while connectivity is a way of life, we shouldn't underestimate the implications of sustaining that connectivity, certainly as technology changes, as needs change, etc. So I think we're at the point now where we realize and recognize that connectivity is a way of life. We need to understand what to connect, where to connect it, but more importantly, why. Mm-hmm. Well, when I hear connectivity, I also think immediately think of the word cybersecurity. And with the increase in cyber attacks on manufacturers, the idea of separate safety systems has really grown. I mean, I remember hearing that countless times. But in a digital world, we all know that that's not possible because at some point, there's some form of a connection. I don't care where it is, there's, but there's a connection. So how can we keep a safety system free from cyber attackers? Uh, Greg, this is probably a podcast all on its own. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do agree with that. <laughs> and probably a lot more to answer what is a relatively simple question than the time. But let me let me start by saying, you know, we're not talking about connecting the safety instrumented system directly to the internet or come mm-hmm. to that providing a path from the internet through to the safety system. But just this week, there's some interesting information from the Logic Group. Now, that's Logic with two I's, L-O-G-I-I-C. This is a consortium that regularly researches weaknesses in automation and then publishes the reports publicly. So they remove any private or sensitive data from the reports, and then they make them globally available. They're free to download. Go check them out two projects. They have Project 11 that specifically looks at the safety instrumented systems and the differences between integrated, partially integrated, non-integrated BPCS, the DCS of the control, and the safety systems themselves. So it looks at those architectures. And then I would also recommend people look at Project 12 because that addresses the instrumentation of management. So As more devices become intelligent, as heart becomes used, that brings connectivity of the asset management system into the architectures. Mm -hmm. But regardless of the architecture, really, the goal is you want to be reducing the overall attack surface. 
You want to be filtering malicious network traffic. You want to be protecting against denial of service. I would also suggest that you include intrusion detection mechanisms because you want situational awareness around the safety system. And I would add two things. Always lock the safety system functionality. That can be physically as well as electronically. Always follow the manufacturer's recommendations because there's a wealth of protection being built in at a product level to help you build that all-important defense in depth. One more thing to add to that, Greg, and it comes back to our role as safety engineers. Take everything that you know about safety and the safety lifecycle and apply it to cybersecurity. Take our HAZOP. Do a cyber HAZOP. Understand your risk posture. Start with identifying the threats, the causes, the consequences, the likelihood. That's what the cyber HAZOP does. And then, and only then, look at how you implement your layers of protection. The reason that I say that, and the reason I want to stress this is, all too often we see throwing technology at this as the answer. Okay, instead of following a systematic approach, know what you're mitigating against and why you're mitigating it. And then you put a more robust defense in depth in place to protect against, as you said, the the, the ever more frequent and the ever more hostile cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, you touch on it where you could throw all the technology in the world at it, but and relating to Industry 5.0, if you don't have the humans there reacting and working with it and using it, it's really it's a, it's a waste of uh, money spent unless you have those two meshing together. I'd like to leave people with some best practices. And so what are some best practices safety professionals can employ as we head toward a more humanized Industry 5.0? I think, Greg, we, we, we've touched on several of them throughout the podcast. So let me just, I think what I would say is, you know, first and foremost, as safety engineers, we need to be digital citizens. You know, be if digital is happening, let's embrace it. Use those digital tools to, to minimize the manual repetitive tasks so that we as safety professionals can find time to do what we do best and create value. I do think we need to learn or be more familiar with data analytics and the tools. We don't need to understand it, but we do need to be able to put it into the context of safety, what it means, why we do things so that we can help others. So be familiar with it, but be able to put it into context. I think the third thing is as we move towards electrification, as that becomes intrinsic to meeting those sustainability goals, we need to understand more about the electrical systems and the equipment. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that we need to be electrical engineers, but electrification is going to have a big impact on the risks, the hazards, and the mitigation efforts. Initiating causes are going to be electrical, not necessarily fuel-based. So that will impact us as safety professionals and our roles. We just touched on it before, the cyber, we can't ignore it. Let's take our safety best practices and apply them from a cyber perspective. So again, all of these 
you know, the role of the safety professional is is ever more challenging. It never gets any easier, certainly as standards evolve, um, as compliance reporting is more demanding and more challenging, as we have to prove what our systems are doing versus the design. We need less to do, not more to do, but I do think these other dimensions are going to come into play that will impact us and our jobs and our roles as safety professionals. Okay, well, Steve, thanks. That's about all the time we have today. So for Steve Elliott, this is Greg Hale saying thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time on Today with ISS Source. Thank you, Greg, and and thanks everybody for listening. Please be safe.